Well, hello. Hello. Just had an incredibly awkward, um, but I think quite necessary conversation with the management of this delightful cafe that you brought me to about turning down the volume of the music. It was quite a heavy bass line. Just felt like a spectacular jerk. I look. I hope that our listeners appreciate the efforts that we're going to to try to deliver audio that allows us to actually be heard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for taking one for the team for that. I have brought Annabelle Crabb to a cafe that I really like that I don't get to very often. It's called Something for Kate. It's tucked away sort of a few blocks behind the ABC. And I love this place because the menu changes a lot, so they just obviously are looking for stuff that's fresh and in season. Um, but they often, when I look at the menu, I'll think, oh, that's an unusual collection of yeah, ingredients. I'm just looking at something that I will not order because it's a beef burger, but it's got um, kale pesto, of course, because, of course, kale pesto, um, fresh leaves, fresh fresh radicchio, hand-cut peaches. I know, who would think to that? Hi, how are you going? Um, can I get the garden bruschetta, please? Oh, but that's what I'm having. Well, what am I coming? Yes, thank you. Yes, please. Could I um, ask for my poached egg to be... Hard. Um, yeah, oh, please. Okay, I'm a bouncing poached egg person. Did you say hard? Yeah. <laughs> How do you even poach it and have it hard? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, isn't, it just... then, isn't it then just a boiled egg? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I cannot do runny egg yolk. I wow. hate myself for it. It's just <laughs> something about the texture of the yolk. Oh, okay. Now, I am a gum at cooking a perfect... Dippy boiled egg. Yeah. My, my kids are obsessed with egg and soldiers. Yep. However, I cannot do it. Oh, Anything with okay. a bit of run, I'm a bit like... You're not there. It's like me with some tuna. I remember one of the first times I came to your place. Um, oh, God, I'm just mentally scrolling back all the, um, you know... You made a niswa salad. Yeah. And I, I like, say, like tuna sashimi, um, mm. but I there's something about tuna, because I used to have to feed the cats often when I was a child. Oh, so tinned tuna. Tinned tuna, I can't yeah. do it. And so I'm watching you make this delicious-looking salad, and then I okay. see the tinned tuna, and I didn't know you well enough to go, for the love of God, stop! <laughs> anyway, you poured it. Thank you. Thank you so you much. poured it all over the top, and I just went, <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, I just oh, ate wow. it because that's called manners. How well. incredibly polite you are. Um, cheers. We've got a juice as well. Which yeah. This is a rock melon, apple, and pineapple. And it's it like me... a Queensland surprise. <laughs> and it pulls me back to the point I was going to make uh, originally, which is the ingredients and the things on the menu at this place, including this juice. Um, often have one ingredient that I think, oh, that's a bit strange, or that I don't like. For example, I don't like rock melon. I can't bear rock melon. Same, but I ordered the juice because I thought I just trust the the combo of stuff they do. And I can't even taste the rock melon in that. I can taste it, but I'm liking it. Very good. So anyway, I've never ordered anything here that I haven't absolutely loved. And now I give the knowledge of the existence of this place as a gift to you. And I've just been in about a three-hour meeting, so I'm just thrilled to not be in a meeting. (laughs) Now, um... Everyone's been Uh, on our case. Thank you. Thank you. To do a podcast about the American election results. Uh, And in fact, we were due to do one on the Thursday, but we kind of canned it because neither of us could think of anything to say, to be honest. And even now, actually, I mean, God, there's been so much pontificating and hand-wringing and discussion about it, and I don't know that I feel that I can add anything particularly insightful, friendly, to what's already been said. Other than I would say just two things. One is, if there's anything that 25 or so years in the news business has taught me, it's that 
things almost never unfold as you predict they're yeah. going to. And so therefore, with Donald Trump, I think, pretty much everyone's predicting, well, oh, this is going to be a disaster, it's going to be the end of the world. The only place that that story really has to go now is if he, if he turns out yeah. to be an okay president. Or just sort of, you know, moderately disastrous instead of, you know, <laughs> instead of the super weapons-grade <laughs> disasters. And like, yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say, sorry, the second thing I was going to say was just that... Um, I mean, I don't think I've ever covered a politician who's been elected who's delivered even a fraction of what they've promised to in the campaign. And so why would Donald Trump be any different? So the idea that he is going to actually build a wall that he's actually going well, to ban Muslims... some bits will stuff. be a fence, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> some bits will just be a small of, Chinese yeah. hedge. <laughs> build me a rockery. <laughs> that great Monty Python scene. Now, another rockery. Slightly to the side Can you of the first quote Monty Python. I, I hate that stuff. Well, it's just another thing about me that you don't know. But sometimes I do that. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I can start quoting with Neil and I. Uh, yeah. make you watch that movie one day. I just, I actually hope now for the listener, the audio is really bad, so they can't hear this. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, what were you going to say? Sorry about the election. Uh, well, look. You know, A, it was a massive um, surprise and flew in the face of conventional wisdom as, you know, large electorates sometimes enjoy doing. <laughs> and um, what you've seen since is like, all of us have been writing about it in the media, all scrambling around trying to sort of reform our uh, earlier um, extremely reliable predictions <laughs> and, and explain to everybody why this happened, you know, like there's yeah. this kind of ex post facto um, clambering back onto the ground of authority, you know, well, yeah. well you understand why this happened, of course, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And the other thing that's happening, which I just find so hilariously annoying, is this whole, you know, digging out things that everybody said about Donald Trump and, you know, there was a whole discussion in Parliament last week where everybody pulled out of the file everything that their opponents said about yeah, Donald Trump. Right. You called him a lunkhead, you know, you yeah. called him a dropkick. Which is just like, oh God, profoundly unhelpful. Um, yeah. And look, the thing about Trump that I think, um, the, the fascinating thing about this election isn't, you know, um, ooh, were you right when you said that Trump was, you know, a liar or, you know, a horrible person. Because, I mean, you know, the guy does um, change his story pretty regularly, right? Like, yeah. It's demonstrably true. He will say things that didn't happen and, Absolutely. and claim he didn't do things, but he's, you know, on tape doing them. I mean, he's had a number of different um, iterations politically, like essentially this sort of... He's changed party multiple times. Yeah, yeah. sort of liberal type who is currently in a, I'm just going to run the Mexicans out of the country phase. So, you know, he changes his mind on things. He's very mercurial. Um, that is not, the, the truth of that proposition is not at issue. The really interesting thing is the extent to which it didn't bother people. Exactly. Like, that is fascinating. I agree. That's the thing that I find the most intriguing um, takeaway, um, which is just this sort of increasing evidence that facts don't matter that much and I find that puzzling for the practice of journalism as I like to do yeah. it because I consider that my job is to present people with facts and um, 
give them the opportunity to you know, rebut them or explain why their facts are actually right or whatever. And so you assume that yeah. if someone is caught out being misleading or misrepresenting a position or just telling outright lies, that if that is exposed, that that hurts that person's credibility. Yeah. But I think we've moved into a sort of phase where, where it doesn't. I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast before, but when I was in the US in uh, 2004, there was a profile um, appeared in a, I think it was New York Magazine or the New York Times Magazine. It was by a journalist called Ron Susskind. And it was about the Bush administration. And it quoted, in the article it was quoted as an unnamed Bush administration source, but it was later revealed to be Carl Rove, who said it, Bush's chief of staff. And he said to Susskind, you, know, you journalists, you people, you live in a in a reality based community where yeah. you think that there's an objective truth, and you measure what we say up against your objective truth. And while you're while you're out there trying to figure out if what we're doing matches reality, we're just out there creating another reality, and then you're going to try and check if that reality matches your reality, and we're just going to keep inventing realities. And at the time, it was like just considered the most jaw-dropping quote. And I look at it now, and I just think how remarkably prescient that was. Wow. That's a... Yeah, I'd forgotten all about that article. I've read it too, I remember it, and remember thinking that that was an extraordinary way to put things. But that is exactly what's happening here. And I guess maybe um, today's world is more and more susceptible to people living in different realities. Like, and, yeah. and you know, like that's... There's a huge um, backlash of criticism against, um, you know, me, the media elites. Yeah. As, uh, the prime minister. I believe you're glad you said elites. Being part of. <laughs> elites. Um, wouldn't it be great if he actually used the French emphasis, like, you know, no, 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 me. You may be the most beautiful woman on television. So you have <laughs> you no have idea. Get that in. Come on. I haven't oh, used that for ages. Poor thing. So, like, you know, that is a re- that's an altered reality, too, where people sit around discussing, you know, the ins and outs of, you know. And, you know, they, I think that what we're witnessing, I don't feel like I struggle to um, understand where people are coming from, frankly, to be annoyed at the political class on both sides or to be annoyed at the media. I don't um, struggle with that at all. The thing that um, I think is new and the reason that I... Because a lot of this stuff, I remember going out to these places when I was there and reporting on some of these things 10 years ago and getting a sense of how hard people's lives were and they've just become harder. But I think... The reason I thought that Trump wouldn't get elected was because, even though I knew that those issues were all real. Oh, that just looks spectacular. Thank you. Thank you very much. We need to have a photograph of that so that we can, you know, make up for this terrible yes. audio. <laughs> yes. At least offer a photo. Um, I thought, because Americans have a real reverence for the office of the presidency, and they right. consider yeah. that the president is a person who embodies the best of America and and American values and dignity and all of that stuff. And I thought that Donald Trump would be somebody that they wouldn't consider the right type of person to assume the office of the presidency. But what I've obviously done is underestimated the degree of anger because they are so angry at the way the system works that considerations like, you know, what type of person is suitable to be the president, that's out the window. It's like a triage system, right, where you respond to the thing that you feel most powerfully about. Now, there was a really, really good piece in the Washington Post uh, in the last couple of days, and it was looking at, you know, the exit polling data, which is kind of your opportunity to... um, 
ask people what they were thinking at exactly the moment when they cast their vote. Right. Like, and, you know, obviously, <laughs> all polling is uh, looking a tiny yeah, bit ropey totally. after the event the last week. But, but the exit polling is really interesting because it asks people, freshmen having voted, you know, their impressions about what powered their vote. Right. And the fascinating thing about this um, investigation that the Washington Post did, did deep into this polling data shows that of the, they asked about four variables, you know, um, that contributed to their decision. Um, the first one was um, need for change. Um, the second was um, economic policy. The third was um, fitness for office. Mm -hmm. And the fourth was temperament. And on three out of four of those, Clinton won hands down over Trump. But on change, right? He um, across all of the voters polled, he won um, eighty-five percent of them. Right, so like it was such a powerful motivator that it overwhelmed all of those other factors, and that's right. just so interesting. I reckon mm. it gives you so maybe people are concerned about you know, and certainly neither of them was very popular. Nobody actually approved really of either of them mm. but um, the thing is though that that I asked multiple people who came on the show during the campaign um, given that the clear message from the public seems to be that they've had a gut full of business as usual have the Democrats made a mistake here because nobody says business as usual more than the Clintons yeah, like that yeah. is the ultimate you know Washington yeah. insider I think as well the Election of Trump, I know this sounds weird, but I think basically it's motivated by the same desires and um, views that resulted in the election of Obama, which is people wanted an outsider to shake up the system, and that is what Obama promised to do. Um, he he used a different language than um, Trump. He, he sort of cast it in his hope. Um, and he was, you know, I'm the guy who's going to come in and we're going to get everyone working together and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, that clearly, he was not able to change the way things operate in Washington. And those people who voted for Obama are the ones who stayed home this time around and didn't want to vote yeah. for Hillary because yeah. their hope was thwarted because it didn't work yeah. out. The people who have responded to Trump are the ones who perhaps didn't respond to the message of hope. They are yeah. angry. And Trump yeah. spoke in... He was angry and belligerent. You know, I thought about... I remember when we watched that first debate um, and we were both pretty horrified by the language and the way he spoke to Hillary Clinton with the constant wrong, wrong and just the sort of hectoring, belligerent behaviour. And I thought about it after he won the election and I thought, you know what, I actually think that the reason that didn't rankle people is because they're so angry and have had such a gut full of politicians that that's how they wish they could speak they to politicians. They pay money to watch someone yelling at a yeah. politician and being just very um, used to them now. Yeah. And so I think that that, you know, was part of it as well, that people actually, you know, they were so angry, they'd love an opportunity to yell or badger somebody like a Hillary Clinton who's so thoroughly part of the establishment. So I think that's why, because to me when I look at the way Trump acts, it, it goes counter to my experience of dealing with many Americans who I think have a real premium on politeness and um, yeah. those type of courtesy and that sort of stuff. Think about those sort of like big um, evangelical communities too and I think mm. before the vote I thought well, how do those people vote for Trump? Like how does a kind of conservative Christian 
look at this election, like between this guy who's like foul mouthed, he's kind of like been married four hundred times, yeah. and grabs women, you know, on the yeah. Well, I guess you know, it's not a problem. Apparently. I guess you think he's less offensive than um, Hillary Clinton. So, now how are you finding the food? Really good. I love that there's now an angle liner across the road. <laughs> I am pretty worried about this. Yeah. I hope it's going to see the light of day. Um, have you had a chance to <laughs> It really is. I know. Seriously, an angle grinder. Oh, and it's a very busy road. That's the other yeah. thing. Cement truck just went past. I might develop an annoying cough in a minute just to round things up. How are you finding the food? Good. Mm. I'm feeling that my loud chewing may be contributing to the background noise. Yeah, yeah same. It's um, a bit of a problem. Um, so the other thing I thought about from that first debate, just quickly. Yeah. Because remember like, that first question that was thrown to... Clinton and to Trump about you know, what are you going to do about jobs? Right. And remember, like, Clinton launches into this kind of, I don't know, just like about a sort of three minutes of boilerplate about the new economy and how it all works mm. together and aspirations. Oh, yeah, that was like, terrible. It's very abstract. Yeah. Um, and then the first thing that Trump says is, uh, Mexico's stealing our jobs. Yeah. You know, well, our jobs are being stolen from us. I'm going to stop that. Mm. And I, you know, mm. that was a really good example of a different way of engaging mm. with voters. And, yeah, he had cut through. Definitely. He, he, got, he delivered the message people wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, now, just to... I, I did bring a few other things to talk about, just because I, I think... Um, I mean, look, I don't know if people are American politicked out, but there seems to be a certain element of depression among many people about it, so I thought maybe some other things might cheer people up a bit. Um, I did a bit of cooking on the weekend. You came over for a barbecue along with a number of other friends. Um, did you eat any of that salted caramel slice I sent you home with? Did you try oh, that? I ate a lot of it. Oh, did you rate it? I thought it yeah, was fantastic. Yeah, it was really good. It's from Neighbourhood, which we've been talking about a little bit, Hedy McKinnon's new book. Um, but the, the key to it, actually, I reckon, is the... Um, Firstly, I like a lot of salt. I make it pretty salty. But also, um, the base has desiccated coconut in it. I often use ginger nut base, which I also really highly rate. But this was desiccated coconut, which I thought worked really well with the caramel. Yeah. And I also made, from that book for dessert, um, a raspberry mousse. Oh, my God, that was so good. Um, that was basically just pureed frozen raspberries with egg whites and then some whipped cream and some fresh raspberries on top. It was very yummy. It was super good. What was that salad you made? um, I made uh, a magrabia salad. That sounds like a cough. Um, So it's Israeli couscous. Mm -hmm. It's one of those products that has a thousand different names, Mm -hmm. depending on, you know, which side of the uh, unrest in the Middle East you're on. But the old Yotam does a bit of giant couscous. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, they look like sort of like almost pea-sized balls of mm. pasta. And the, the way I bought them for the first time in London when I lived there and I had no idea how to cook them. Right. And I, had, I couldn't find any instructions on the internet. I remembered that I had had it once at this cafe in Mursa. <laughs> yeah. In Mursa had. And I just thought yeah. it, it was this, like this char-grilled corn and giant couscous salad. I just found it so enchanting and I just had never seen it in a shop. And I found it in a shop and I took it home and just started this procedure of trying to work out how to cook it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
It turns out that it works best if you toast it before you cook oh. it. So, so it's the pasta balls, and you um, heat up a pan with just a little bit of olive oil in it, right. and then you fry them oh. in the oil. So they go all sort of nutty and mm. dark, and then you add stock, and you just cook them in the stock, basically. Mm. It's sort of like one cup of giant couscous to a cup and a half of stock, basically. And was the frying it in Yotan's instructions? Because um, as we have discussed know. before, he gives very specific... I don't know, actually. I must go and look at... Because that... I mean, I served it at the weekend, so I cooked up the couscous, then let it cool. Like, you sort of cool and dry it on tray. And then I just made a vinaigrette, and I did some zucchini ribbons, and some torn-up mint, and some uh, feta. Right. So it was just very yum. Yeah, it wasn't too. Do heavy. you know what was the hit of that barbecue? Our friend Clive made a fish curry, which he told me was oh, from the was Spice good. I Am. Yeah. That was just off the charts. Yeah. Incredible. He will be invited back. <laughs> uh, so that was sort of a fun thing to do on the weekend. Um, I haven't been consuming a lot of culture, but I know the other, there's one other thing that I know that we did both do, which was our friend Benjamin Law recommended an article that was oh, in the New York Times magazine about. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tony Hale, who she's Selena Meyer in Veep, and he Gary is he plays Gary the bag man. The bag man. And it was, God, I don't know, maybe five to ten thousand words dissecting their relationship and the way they, the two actors play off each other, and all of the little minuscule um, uses of body language and things to convey the truth and the depth of the relationship. How good was it? Was such a beautifully written and precise article, mm. and the fact that it was concentrated on such a tiny thing mm. was a, a real contributor to the loveliness of the article. Mm. But it also made me think about that show in a whole different way. Because you know how, um, I mean, comedy is such a difficult recipe anyway, right? Mm. The most, the line that struck me most of all was that in a like. This is Armando Iannucci's um, script, so it's super, super fast and chattery mm. and there's noise, noise, noise and, you know, witty commentary and so on. But this writer observed, and I'd never thought about it before, that the relationship, um, that, that Gary doesn't really have that many lines, right. but his comedic kind of enterprise is much more based around silence, mm. but it's it's the way he looks and the way he carries himself. Mm. And the writer who wrote this piece also reported that he was totally stunned when he met Tony Hale to discover that he's really handsome. Yeah. And because you don't think of Gary as being No, absolutely he not. He talks about, Hale talks about inhabiting that character and how the first thing that he did was to really slump and right. punch. It's just, it's, it's because great. He, and the reason he said that is because he said, because it would just be so shameful to Gary that he's so much taller than Selena. Yeah. Because she, he, in his mind, she has so much more stature and so yeah. he's constantly ashamed that he's taller than her. It was just, it was full of little gems of observation like that. It just made me also appreciate so much. I mean, I love that show, as we all know, as do you. And I think that he and her are just both so brilliant but it just made me appreciate them even more like the sort of degree of difficulty of you know anything that's really good always looks sort of effortless effortless but the degree of difficulty of pulling that off is so high it also reminds you like such an obvious thing to say about how casting is just like the number one important Mm. thing but also it's really clear that those two actors have also Develop that character, their 
particularly his character, in a way that has really contributed to the success of that yeah. show. That may not have been like... Well, it's because I remember watching the DVD extras for The Office, the British um, version huh, of The Office. Yeah. And you know, um, have you watched it before? Yeah. So, you know, Gareth, um, yeah. he's, the actor's name is Mackenzie Walk, I think. Yeah. He's um, the militaristic. The militaristic, um, yeah. yeah, sort of, um, you know, David Brent's, probably the only guy who really is a follower of David yeah. Brent. Um, when they wrote The Office, they have visualised that guy, because he's a big military buff, they yeah. visualised him as a big buff-looking guy, you know, he sort of yeah. looked like a military guy. And then this guy came in who got the role, who you might remember looks very bird-like. He's extremely skinny and bird-like and nerdy-looking. Um, and he read for the role, and they said the comic um, value of the fact that he looked nothing like a military guy, he looked like the nerdiest guy you could possibly imagine, and yet he was obsessed with all this sort of elite military stuff, just made it so much funnier. And so they said, you know, the skill of him to walk in, and when, when we saw him walk in, we thought, wrong. And then he did the reading and we just went, he has to get it. Like, nobody else could possibly get it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's key. The thing with Veep, too, is that the casting... I mean, I love... If you said to me, who's your favourite character? I'd say, oh, well, you know, I do really love Gary. But, but then I'd think, oh, but I do really love Selena. Oh, but I do really love Kent. Like, just all of them are so... I do love Jonah. Like, you know, they're all so fantastic. Um, I've been watching recently um, Rosehaven, which is... Um, Celia Pacola um, and... Um, you've got a bit of a girl crush on her. I've got a serious girl crush on that lady. I just think she's so clever. And um, the reason why Rosehaven is really, really great, so it's Luke McGregor from Luke Warm's Sex and Celia, who was in... Um, she was in Utopia. Um, she was also in... Um, the Tolstoy. Sorry, my phone rang with someone. She just bumped the Prime Minister's office, y'all. <laughs> I do feel very, very lucky. Anyway, you um, said you were watching Rosehaven. So, yeah, right. Um, so, the thing that makes this show really work isn't the relationship, like the, the comedy is about the relationship between Celia Pacola and Luke McGregor. Now, um, Luke McGregor is this sort of nerd who's... Are they a couple, like married? Or? No, oh. they're best friends. Oh. Um, so the setup is um, he's moving home to Tasmania right. to help his mother, who's this terrifying battle axe, with her real estate agency because she's having a hip replacement or something. Right. And Celia has just got married and is on her honeymoon when her husband breaks up with her. So she flees to Tasmania to, oh, okay. to sort of seek solace. And she ends up sort of helping out with the real estate agency. And the comedy really is about the two of them kind of settling into this tiny, tiny Tasmanian community. Right. And there's a couple of, like, just brilliant repeat gags. And one of them is, like, it's Luke Briggs running into all these people who's been him at school. And they all say, oh, you're back from Melbourne, are you? Couldn't hack it. <laughs> anyway, so it's beautiful because it's the Tasmanian countryside. So you've got this sensation that both of them are constantly being upstaged by this incredibly yeah, right. scenery. But the comedy is just beautifully paced and it doesn't try to do anything that it's not already doing. Like it, the strength of it is their relationship. Cola, you know, is just brilliant. She's right. very warm and intelligent but kooky. She's just perfectly suited to this role. Why wouldn't she be? She wrote it for herself. <laughs> 
with McGregor. So basically right. they're being themselves in a sort of comic environment. And it's just, it's a real joy to watch. Okay, all right, I must have to have a look yeah. at that. I've seen it advertised but haven't got around to it. And it's sort of gentle and it's, you know, it, it, you know how sometimes the thing that makes you feel really uncomfortable about comedy is when it's trying too hard or it's trying just to sort of, you know, be something. Yeah. It's just itself, this show. And That's it's just, good. I like that. It's delightful. The, um, what I've been watching, there's only been one episode of it on so far, but it's one of my absolute favourites, which also, you know, is what it is, is um, Please Like Me. Um, I, I just, I love that show so much because yeah, it's both funny and sad. There was a bit in it where I laughed aloud. I had to pause because I just could not stop laughing um, in the first episode where... There's a character I really like named Tom, who is the flatmate of and sort of the best friend of Josh, who's the main character, um, and who's played by just Thomas. Anyway, Tom, Tom was this sort of <laughs> slightly melancholic, neurotic, bit sort of you know down in the dumps, woe is me sort of guy. Um, but he's also sort of sweet. He's got a bit of a heart of gold. Anyway, this hilarious line where Josh Thomas said. Um, Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible to think about things ending, you know, like, because Tom's going to move out. It's terrible to think about things ending like Harry Potter or like the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio is not hot anymore. And it cuts to a shot of Tom and he just looks sort of all crestfallen and he says, I was never hot. He was so hot and now he's normal. And that same shift is going to happen to me, but I was never hot. <laughs> it's just, it was the way he delivered it was so hilarious. But also I was thinking about it later thinking... I just know from friends who write on things, the writing of gags is so hard because it, it depends so much on yeah. the formulation of, like I went back and listened to it so I could write that down and I wrote down as it happened, I, I was never hot but he was hot. And, and I thought later, no, it actually, to make the rhythm of the whole delivery work right, it needs to be, I was never hot, he was so hot, as sort of short sentences. Anyway, um, that show, I think the writing of it is so great and I love the casting of it and I just, yeah, it's, it just it's really makes me happy. And do you know the other thing that made me happy this week, <laughs> or maybe last week, that little viral video of that little 12-year-old boy in Tasmania who makes bears? Did you see that? Oh. <laughs> I just wept all the way through it. <laughs> it was just a very story, wasn't it? No, it was on the feed on SBS. Oh, um, sorry, yeah. Oh, if you, if you, one of the, you know, one remaining people in the world who haven't actually seen that, it's a little boy who's 12 in, who lives in Tasmania and he spends his afternoons after school on his sewing machine, sewing bears to take to the hospital to give to sick kids. And he was just the sweetest little dude. He was so great. It was just such a lovely story. He wasn't the sort of, you know, sort of roll your eyes kind of, you know, Saccharin. No. Like he was just the kookiest, loveliest little kid. <laughs> he was. He was just a really, really adorable little boy. So if you want a little bit of a ray of sunshine in your world, I recommend having a look at that. Now, I think we should stop recording because yeah, I'm just worried we've wasted like half an hour for nothing. Um, <laughs> so I've eaten my, my thumb really quietly for nothing. Yeah, I know. Anyway, okay, fingers crossed. Bye. <laughs>